Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. So we are recording this podcast at the Upgrade Your Life event 2020, and I'm with Dr. Guy Winch. Uh, Welcome, Guy. Thank you very much for having me both on the podcast and at the event. And so it's been an interesting uh, first day. Uh, what have you thought of it so far and the speakers and the, um, the whole flow? I thought it was great. I mean, I didn't know the energy could get better than last year. And it is. It's like yeah. there's real enthusiasm and, and people are really here to learn. People are really here to get something accomplished, which is such a great audience to have. And the speakers are really varied and complementary, so there's things coming at you from every angle. Yeah, and that's the most pleasing thing for me as a curator to right. see all the speakers working as a team and mm. you're all referencing the framework and uh, and the, the, the synergy between all of us, uh, myself introducing the framework, then yourself with Identity Change and with Jim Quick. After that, you know, with, um, you know, the meta-learning and, uh, uh, yeah, and so we've had group meditation, we've had... Uh, Mark Bunn talking about Ayurvedic medicine. We had Dr. Jen Mann with her parenting advice. That was mm-hmm. <laughs> incredible. And Tom Sullivan, you know, uh, his group meditation was surreal. Mm-hmm. He specifically designed it for our framework and he took people through this visual for each of the areas of life. And it was, it was you know, the silence in the room was amazing. It was, uh, and what I needed to, to recharge, it was, it was great. But um, your book sold out. And we had a pop-up bookstore at the event. The only thing we ever sell at the event, I, I should add. Uh, but it sold out in the first hour. <laughs> so it was incredible. Yeah. No, it's great. And I think your opening today was great also. I mean, you really set the frame and you, you teed it up for everyone. Um, I think especially for me, some of the stories you were, I didn't know what you were going to say. Yes. And some of the stories like, well... It's as if I invited, like as if I, you know, ordered, please start with something that sets me up in this way. And, and so it was really, really powerful. So what story was that? The one about your childhood in, uh, in Beirut. Yes. Yeah. How we had to... F- how you had to flee. Yes. Uh, literally as shells were flying. Yes. And the impression that that left, which obviously it would. I mean, that's a very powerful story and one too many people can actually relate to these days. Yeah, so um, for those of you who haven't uh, attended the event, so I shared a story for the very uh, first time and actually I was inspired to uh, share the story after speaking with David Goggins Mm. because um, I spoke to him before I went on stage and I said, you know, I I love your vulnerability and sensitivity and um, I said, how do you just open yourself up and just expose everything that's inside to the rest of the world. And uh, I loved what he said to me and it was personal, so I'll keep that offline. But then, you know, I decided just uh, just before then just to step up on stage and um, and share that adversities. On that note, um, uh, after you came off stage uh, and we were doing the book signing uh, together and um, there was quite a few people that were quite emotional, weren't they? Uh, that came off stage, uh, once you came off stage and they were sharing their personal stories. Uh, do you mind sharing uh, any of those? Or um, Well, what I ask people to do, actually, I mean, I think why that was is, yes. um, and this is why you, you had set me up so well, because what I was talking about are self-defining memories. Yes. The kinds of memories that stand out for us over our lives that really made us who we are, that 
were very, very meaningful and significant because they, they were powerful enough to be formative. And we all have such memories, and they can be large or they can be small moments. Um, one of the moments that somebody shared um, in the audience uh, was when she was eight years old and she saw her father um, get into a Santa suit and slip in through the garage door yes. with presents. And that's how she learned Santa wasn't real. Yes, yes. And, and why that's a formative moment yes. is because there are many things that happen in that moment. It's not just, oh, Santa isn't real. I mean, I'm going to make this a little extreme, but the conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> that's been going on your entire life, obviously, yes. your parents have been lying to you all your life. So what impact did that have on, on her? So I, I, you know, we didn't, this, this was, as, you know, I'm just as asking for some examples of, uh, yes. as for a small moment. Yes. And that was a small moment with a big impact. So we didn't have a chance to really unpack it. Right. But I can unpack it and, and you know, and it suddenly your whole worldview changes. Yes. Suddenly everywhere, how you see the world is different. Santa isn't real. Yes. Dad has been, you know, pulling the wool over my eyes all these years, probably with the cooperation of mum. And is that what parents are doing now to, to children? I mean, how do I know what to trust in a way, right? I mean, so it, that's a small moment. It has a big, a big, big impact. And people were sharing afterwards some of those um, really self-defining memories of their life. And that's an emotional thing. Well, parents lie to their children all the time yes. because you have to, you know, children are not uh, equipped yes. to hear a lot about the reality of life. So you shelter them. But during the book signing, someone came up to me from the, you know, who was, who was in the audience and he said, you know, I'm in a, in a men's group and somebody shared the, uh, their experience of, of telling their son um, that Santa wasn't real. Yes. And he had it written out and he showed it to me and it was absolutely beautiful. It was beautifully said. Do you remember what it was? Roughly. Yes. Roughly. But it was roughly the thing of, yes, Santa isn't real. Yes. But Santa's an idea. And that idea exists. And I wanted that idea to exist for you. That there's good in the world. That people do things for other people. And that's what the idea of Santa is about. And I'm telling you that so that you can go forth Yes. And be, you know, that kind of person as my father was. For me, I'm probably completely mucking it up, but it was no, just that's beautifully beautiful. written. Beautiful. It was be I just yeah. read the whole thing and I'm like, wow. I said, there was such a better answer than somebody said to me, what do you say to kids? And I came up with some kind of answer on the spot. I said, you know, why didn't you just raise your hand and say, I have a better answer than you? Because <laughs> you do. <laughs> I wish you would have read that. That would have been so good. I know. So um, I can probably point him out maybe you can find him but it was really lovely yes and um and so and but emotional right i mean it's an emotional thing this is like a father passing on to the son who's now passing it on to his son so what one of the reasons why i wanted you to go straight after i set the framework mm -hmm. and shared the blueprint for how to upgrade your life because one of the key elements to borrow you know uh jim's mnemonic is that people come for the information and the inspiration but they never get the implementation and the mm -hmm. blueprint. And I was determined to make sure that people come back next year and say, I've done the implementation. Mm -hmm. This is what I've transformed in my life. This is what I'm still working on. And um, so I, I realized very early on in my life that it's all about behavioral change, you know, upgrading anything, 
requires us to be conscious you know, of our current behaviours, but we never get a chance to be conscious because we're always in distraction mode and we don't have a framework. So I shared that framework and it all comes down to behavioural change is initiated by identity change. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you shared with the audience uh, uh, on I, you, you, your talk was the science of identity change mm-hmm. or the science of identity for to initiate behavioral change. Right. And, what are and the you know, key elements? Well, you know, it's interesting about, you know, behavioral change because that word, that term almost has a connotation of, oh, this is something superficial. It's just behavioral change. Yeah. But you can't support behavioral change without deeper change. Behavioral change, you know, just superficially doesn't last. It has to be supported by change at deeper levels. And so I was talking about the fact that when you're changing a behavior, when you have certain goals, motivations, you, you need to do something with your sense of identity so that it will support that change. It's like ordering a big new sofa yes. and trying to get it into your living room without making space for it first. You're going to have to do a lot of pushing and shoving and it's not going to look pretty and it's not going to sit well. Um, so you actually have to make the space. So one of the examples I gave um, was that um, imagine two people who are athletes in college. Yes. And now they're in their 30s and they haven't seen the inside of a gym in however many years. One of them um, thinks of themselves still as athletic. The other thinks of themselves as lazy. And they both decide that they're going to get healthy. And they set a goal of going to the gym four times a week. Now, which of those two people is going to struggle more? Well, the one who thinks of themselves as lazy... Uh, is trying to, you know, uh, change behavior in a way that contradicts his internal sense of self, his self-perception. It's going to be a much bigger struggle for him to get his, you know, literally lazy ass to the gym. Uh, Meanwhile, the other person who thinks of themselves still as athletic, even though with no real recent evidence, um, it's much more in line with how he thinks of himself. Athletes work out there's much less of an internal hurdle and struggle to get to the gym. That person is going to succeed much more. Now, that, those are two people who just happen to think of themselves that way. Yes. But you can work on yourself such that you can decide, I'm going to start going to the gym. And if I can get myself up to, you know, a few times a week, I'm going to start thinking of myself as an athlete. Because the definition of athlete is somebody who, you know, exercises regularly and If you're going a few times a week, even if it's for a couple of weeks, you are, by definition, an athlete. Just like somebody said to me once, um, oh, yeah, no, I'm an artist. And I'm like, well, what's your medium? And he said, oh, I'm a painter. I'm like, well, when did you last paint? Oh, like seven years ago. Well, you're not an artist because an artist is somebody who's doing that. You used to be, but you're not. Now pick up a brush and you will be. Yes, And so it's that kind of thinking that um, we need to, um, and I went into uh, slightly more detail and with more complexity because this happens at deeper levels. Yes, But the concept of if you want to um, enact some kind of improvement, some kind of change in your life, you have to make sure that you are thinking yourself, thinking of yourself in line with the goals you have. And certainly you have to make sure that you're not thinking of yourself in a way that contradicts the goals you have, because you're going to make it much harder for yourself to reach those goals if that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. Most people have process-based goals, like mm-hmm. I want to turn up to the gym three days a week, and others will say, oh, I want a six-pack. But 
real behavioural change starts with identity to say, well, I'm an athlete. What does an athlete do? An athlete shows up to the gym three days a week. An athlete, uh, you know, has a six-pack. But it's, so it starts with identity change, but then that has to be reinforced by the, the actions, right? The behaviours right. have to reinforce. I'm actually a proponent of the process. In other words, for me, I think that if somebody wants to diet, for example, yes. um, if their motivation is I want to lose, um, you know, 10 kilos, yes. that's problematic because um, mm. when you lose them, what's going to prevent you from gaining them? Okay, you lost them. So there, what next? there went the motivation. Goal reached, check that off the list, now what? And yeah. people, that's why they yo-yo. If the goal is... I'm going to eat healthy yes. and exercise three times a week. And I don't care what I weigh. If I eat healthy and exercise yes. three times a week, you will lose the weight. You will get healthier. But it's that external focus on some, you know, truly arbitrary result of just, let me just pass through a goal line. When you're trying to create lifestyle change, there is no finish line. Yes. It, it, it shouldn't be to yep. get to a finish line if it's lifestyle change. It should be to adopt the change without looking at what qualifies as success or not. Success is the adoption of the change, not a certain weight loss, not... People say to me like, oh, I, I'm trying to write something, but I'm, I'm really struggling. So my goal is 500 words a day. And I'm like, your goal should be two hours a day, however many words come out of you, right. not 500 words, because there'll yeah. be 500 crappy words. What's the point? But sit yeah. for two hours, see what comes out. Yes. That's, I think, a better way to get there. It's a beautiful distinction, actually, and one that people can relate to. So what are some of the identities we should be pursuing at a, at a very high level that is universal to all of us? So I guess like uh, cycling through, um, we, we covered health sort of, but uh, if we look at, say, love, mm -hmm. so what sort of identity should we be pursuing in the area of love or family or mm. you can start in any one of those? Sure. Yeah. But, um, and I, I mentioned this today as part of the talk, I think quite briefly, um, but what kind of partner do you want to be? Yeah. And again, these questions about what kind of partner you want to be, what kind of person you want to be, it's, it's remarkable how little we think about that. We know we fall into relationships yeah. and we, you know, we just are the way we are, but we don't give thought to what are my values here? What do I want as a partner yes. to be able to give, provide um, the other person? Yes. What are the dynamics that I want my relationship to have? How do I define a good relationship for me, for the other person? What is it that I need to do to be that person? We are on autopilot way too much of the time. We don't pause to think, wait, is that the person I want to be? And we don't think that um, because we, you know, we haven't defined it. So we don't have any kinds of guidelines for our behavior within relationships because we haven't set them. We haven't said them because we don't think of ourselves in that way. But once I ask people, well, what kind of partner do you want to be? What's important, do you think, that a partner should provide the other person? And people will say to me when they're thinking about it, mm. oh, uh, well, then to be supportive, say. And then I say to them, well, is that something that you're focused on, being supportive, to the other person. And it just never occurred to them to ask themselves that. They might be, they might not be, but they're not intentionally so. They coincidentally so. Yes. It's a big difference between coincidentally something, because often at times you're coincidentally not, yes. and then setting an intention and trying to live up to what your purpose is, what your values are, what you think matters, what, how you think 
uh, you know, a person should be, a relationship should be. Yeah, so maybe we'll stay on this a little bit because you are a relationship expert. Um, and you mentioned something there quite interesting. There's a distinction because in it, when it comes to love and relationships, when I say love, I mean like intimate, physical and, and emotional intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, is there two identities? There's your identity, but then there's the relationship as a separate identity? Yes, I I, I I say there's a relationship as a separate entity. Entity, yeah. So there are three people in every relationship. Um, there's one person, yes. there's the other person, and there's their relationship. And I will sometimes say to, uh, to people, all right, your need mm. and your need is different at times than the need of the relationship. And you need to ask yourself, like zoom out, yes. look at your couplehood, and ask what that needs right now. And it might be different than what either of you individually might need. Either of you individually, say, might be going through a hard time with one another and feel like, well, I need space from that person. But then if you zoom out and look at the relationship, Mm. distance at the time of friction is probably not what the relationship needs. And if you start asking that question, you come to, you know, you'll you'll come to different conclusions about what's important. And I think the needs of the relationship, similarly to the needs of children, should override the individual needs of of the person. Um, unless they no longer want to be in that relationship. But here the assumption is you want to be and you want to be happier, then, then zoom out. And what I say to couples often is that, you know, you're managers of this relationship. So yes. manage it. Have a, have a staff meeting. Ask each other what the relationship needs. Uh, ask each other what you can do for the relationship. And, not, um, and people tend to ask what the other person should be doing. No, ask what you <laughs> yeah should be doing, you know, like don't, don't go in there thinking, okay, I'm going to get the other person to make all these changes. Yes. Just go in asking what you need to change. If you each individually take that responsibility and do that, you'll get much further than going with the assumption of, well, if they change, everything will be better. No, if you do, things will be better. Ah, that's a really powerful distinction. I, I love that. So just to recap, uh, just so people understand exactly what um, Dr. Guy Winch just said, and that is that, if you value the relationship, you need to put the relationship first. Yes. And yourself second. Yes. And uh, to borrow the famous word, so ask not what the what? relationship can do for you, but what you can do for the relationship. Yes. Yes. That's, that's beautiful. And I, I think that's, that's a very powerful lesson for a lot of um, couples out there because we're always looking to take, take, take from mm-hmm. the relationship. And across all aspects of the relationship, uh, I mean, I've, I've coached people who just say, you know, my partner, even in bed, take, take, takes, but mm-hmm. I don't get anything in return, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you put the relationship first, it's not like you're putting them ahead of yourself. No, it's not them. It's not you. It's the relationship. Right. And, and you know, of course, secondarily, it will benefit you. If your relationship is better, you will be happier for sure. It's about how you get there. Yes. Now, what does the research say about... Um, you know, people in happy relationships versus being single. And so is it worth, is it worth investing in a relationship? And I think it's, the, it's that younger generation that, uh, that are uh, maybe not as, as motivated to enter relationships yes. uh, um, as the older generation. Millennials often are. But when you, you know, when you hit your 30s and, you know, you're going through life, there's a sense of stability, of, of connection, of, you know, we're, we're, we're as, as you said in your opener, we're social animals. We, we evolved 
in tribes. We we evolved in a in a social uh, you know network, and so we need our own little mini tribe. Yes, and we are happier and healthier emotionally and physically when we are in one. Um, the the thing I think that millennials are struggling with mm. uh, is this fractured uh, um, and even the younger generation, this this fractured nature of society right now, right? Like, it's the gig economy. We we don't have one full-time occupation. We do a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, yeah. you know, on the side. So it's all very, very fractured. And with that come fractured identities. Now, I, I don't think that there's anything necessarily bad in that setup. There are plenty of people who are multi-talented, who have many interests, and they can weave together this tapestry of what they do um, that will be a complete, uh, you know, a professional calling for them. Yes, for yeah. example, yeah. Uh, lawyers who, who start, <laughs> you know, uh, self-improvement programs. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, when it comes to relationships, that fracturing doesn't really work as well. Yes. Um, and, 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 you know, but with the fracturing also, with the, you know, divided attention span, yes. comes this societal situation in which you know we're like we're not staying rooted enough in our personal relationships um and and you know loneliness is an epidemic um and in part um you see people who are in relationships and very lonely because they're not getting the benefit of that relationship because they are you know they're they're in one officially but they're emotionally disconnected so they're not getting the, the benefit of it um, and I think that the idea of um, if you want to feel uh, more rooted, um, then have a home base. Yes. And by home base, I don't just mean physical space. I mean relational space that from which you can operate and go do all those many things you do. But have one place that's a sanctuary. Have one place that's a home where you come to rest between the excursions of life. And that, I think, should be a relationship. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. One really interesting question that um, uh, I was asked this morning, I won't say by who, but it was my daughter. (laughs) She's quite an insightful child. She's, uh, well, a teenager now. She's an introvert and she's always the one that's listening in the room, Mm -hmm. you know. And, um, you know, um, on the way into into Upgrade Your Life, we were in the car together. My wife went ahead of us and uh, we were talking about a friend of hers from work whose parents split up. Mm. And she... And I said, well, you know, that's tragic. Her parents shouldn't have split up. I think you have a responsibility when you have kids to stay together. And she said, well, no, her parents are always arguing. Isn't it better that they stay apart? When, and so I was, I was sort of arguing for the opposite case. And mm-hmm. I said, well, no, things are never irreconcilable. Uh, I think that it's just a, if they want to put in the work, they will get They'll invest in the relationship and get the return. The return will be functional. You don't just give up on something, especially when you have kids. So we're doing this arm wrestle. And mm. then the, I, I, I thought to myself, the interesting question is, when do you give up on a relationship? At what point where it is toxic for everyone, or, you know? So is it is it just through, because you, you do a lot of this, and mm-hmm. is it through, do relationships break up through just lack of trying? Or is it because they should be, they should break up because it's just totally beyond repair. So when, when couples come to see me um, as a therapist, yes, um, the question is always, all right, things started to go wrong 
whenever, how long did they wait before they came to really start working on the repair? And did they wait too long? Yes. Because you need a lot of um, air to, I mean, literally oxygen, not literally, but figuratively oxygen, to, to be able to um, tolerate this process of change. You and your partner are not going to change immediately. Yeah. Mistakes will be made. You know, they'll have, you know, they'll get better at one thing and worse at another. And if you are really at the end of your rope, you won't be able to sustain and tolerate and absorb those mistakes. And that's when you've waited too long where you literally don't have any rope left and you just can't take it. And that's when a lot of people go to therapy, unfortunately. Now, some of that can be salvaged. Yes. But I often, not often, but I've had many times the occasion over the years to say to couples, I'm sorry, you waited too long. You both don't have any rope left. You have no forgiveness for the other person left and you will need it if you need, if you're going to change and improve. And sometimes they'll look at me and say, well, no, that's not true. And I will say, if you think not, A, go home and talk about it Mm. and discuss together and come back with a list of three priorities that you want to work on. Come back with a list of two things each of you is willing to really change for the other person. And then maybe I'll be convinced you do have it in you. And they rarely come back because they try and do that and they realize we can't. We, we just, you know, we're, we've drifted too far. We're, we're just, it's too much of an accumulation. Now, vis-a-vis the kid, yeah. the, the, in this, if it's a friend, uh, then mm. she's, you know, she's a teenager. She's not that much of a kid. But couples often try and stay together for the kids. The question is, what are you modeling for them? If you're modeling how to be absolutely miserable with the person you live with yes, and how yes. to create massive tension in the household on a regular basis with very little love, with very little affection, um, I'm not sure you're doing a service yeah. to your kid. So you once said in a previous uh, Upgrade Your Life um, presentation that divorce is one of those things that psychologists can predict with the highest accuracy. I think yeah. it was 94%. Something like that. Have you ever had couples in front of you where you thought, yep, they're in a 94% or you, you, you can tell straight away? That they're going to get divorced? Yeah. Yes, but that's when I say to them, hmm. it's those, the ones I was just referring to. Oh, the to. ones you... Okay. Those are the ones where... Now, uh, sometimes actually, not always, but because but, sometimes there can be people who think that they have it in them, but you look at them and, oh my goodness, you are so mismatched. Okay. You, are, you just, you don't get each other, you have different priorities, you don't make each other happy, you manage to say the wrong thing to one another with such regularity, you know, it's, it's almost hard to choose the absolute wrong thing to say in response. And yet you both go for it over and over and over again. And I, I will say to them, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I'm, I'm, not, yeah. um, uh, I'm, I'm not past, you know, uh, I think it's important to, to make fun a little bit of, of yes. couples shtick. You know, like, you know, if they're having the same argument for the third time in one session, in the first session, then I'm already bored. And I will say to them, you know, you've been here 20 minutes. I've heard this argument three times. Are you not bored having it? If you had it three times in 20 minutes, yes. why are you following the same script over and over and over again if it makes you miserable? Just do anything different. Surprise the other person. Are, are some people just adapted, addicted to misery and they just like that sort of trauma in their life? They entrench. They entrench and their feeling is, well they need to do something different. It's them. It's not me. So my response to them is reasonable. 
because they're the one that's unreasonable, except that their partner is sitting across from them on the couch, sitting, thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah. And then it's a stalemate. Like who, you know, like no one's winning. What just do something, surprise the other person. And I say to couples, like, if you're having the same argument over and over again, and you can script out what's going to happen. Yes. Please stop having it. Just don't follow the script. Say anything off script and see what you get. Maybe the other person will look perplexed. Yes. But just don't follow the same beats of an argument over and over and over again. That's good advice. And what is the, you know, the top quality that most um, people complain about in the other person? Like always late. I heard you mention. <laughs> that's, a, that's not the most common, but it, it certainly it's an irritant for some people. So, what is the biggest irritant for say men and women? So they have different irritants. People different are, are educated enough yes. to come and say the following, which means something, but in essence doesn't say anything. And that is yes. that we have communication problems. Now, what does that mean? Oh, it means we scream at each other all the time, or it means we don't talk to each other all the time, yes. or it means we keep having the same argument, or it means we keep having different... I mean, there's so many versions of that. So yes. it doesn't really yeah. tell me, of course you're having communication problems because... You know, how do you know you're not getting along unless you're communicating about that or not? So that it's it's a catch-all category. It's correct to say that, except yes. it doesn't really tell you anything or it doesn't tell them anything. But they're correct in, you know, like I think 20 years ago, couples wouldn't know to say we're having communication. So they learned that. Yes. Um, yes. But let's drill down a little, a little further now and let's look at well, what those are, what's the repetition of them and what's the style of them and what's the dynamic you know, so you over talk yes. to the other person and so you talk them to death and their response to that is to withdraw and clam up, which makes you incredibly irritated yes. because now they're not communicating, which they're not because you just over talk them and just didn't give them a chance to. But now you're even angrier. So you're telling them even more how angry you are. So now they're withdrawing even further and there goes the dynamic and no one's changing it. Has our tolerance threshold dropped then over the years? Because I remember my parents would argue, right? And, but I remember there's a lot of love as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, I, I remember smiles and hugs and watching TV and, but, but if you ask me what I remembered the most that had the biggest impact on me as a child, I'd remember the arguments, the epic arguments. The good stuff was, you know, maybe 90, 95% of the time. Mm -hmm. But why is it that the 5% drowns out, you know, the good stuff? It, 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 when you go back and hi when you, in hindsight, look at the, you know, relationship. Uh, in our newscasts, yes, the headline is the epic argument. There is no newscast that says, oh, everything's good. We're having some good moments here in the country. Yes. It's all about, you know, the, the, the bad stuff. That's what garners our attention on the news and in relationships. We yes. remember the epic arguments. Um, the fact that there was 95% of good stuff, I think is very, very meaningful. And yeah. whether you remember all of those examples or not, you've internalized them. You've, they've modeled for you yes. what love is about. We get angry at people we love. And I think the dividing line that we should have is I can be absolutely furious at you yes. and really just want to throttle you in some way, but I would never want to hurt you because that would upset me because I care too much about you to hurt you. I am livid. Yes. Yeah. But I'm just angry. I don't want you to actually be hurt. And, and that changes when couples start hurling insults at one another. 
name-calling, character slams, that's when it descends um, into something that's um, harmful. Right. That's, you, you can't unring a lot of those bells. Yes. And people, what they remember is, oh, that time you called me that name. And that can be remembered for 20 years. And it should be remembered because, you know, we need to be, as adults, be able to express our anger in words. Because when I'm starting calling somebody names, I'm actually not describing in any way what's angering me. Yes. I have given them no insight into what they did that really upset me. Yes. I might think I am because I'm yelling at that incident, but that incident is very nuanced and there are many, many aspects to it and I'm not elucidating to them what exactly they did and how that impacted me. Right. And so right. I'm not giving them any tools with which they cannot do that again. Yes. So I'm not serving myself. Yep. Yeah, that's... Uh it's a really powerful distinction and uh, nicely explained too, by the way. That's, that's really beautiful. And we're so fortunate on, uh, to have you on the podcast. It's really awesome. I cannot thank you enough, Guy. And also for coming out to uh, upgrade your life. You've flown all the way from the East Coast of America, which I know is the hardest on jet lag because I can make it to your West Coast and not feel jet lag. The moment I head a little bit <laughs> further east, it yeah. just... Uh, so thank you again. And um, can you tell us, you've had an interesting year, uh, actually. Can you tell us about your work with TED and what's going on there? It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah so I... I, um, I uh, taped an, and uh, a, a third TED Talk, which came out uh, a little over a month ago. What's um, the, what was the title to that again? The title is like, um, just have to remember, because it's their title, but it's something like, um, oh my goodness, it's about how to uh, not think about work during your free time, something like oh, that. But yes, it's about yes, work yeah. stress. In rumination. It's about rumination. rumination. It's about the yes. fact that um, the interesting thing about work stress is it, usually doesn't happen at work because we're too busy. Yes. It's our ruminating about work when we're outside of work. Yes. Um, that that I love creates that, that stress. I love that. It's only 12 minutes, so please listen to it. But I absolutely loved it because I, I could so relate to it. Mm. You know, that that was me. Yes. It's and still, it's many still, people. still me yeah, to some extent. It used extent. to be me and I'm working on it still, <laughs> but, but, but it is something we need to be mindful of. Yes. Um, I'm also um, going to be uh, starting a, an advice column with Ted. It's going to be science-based advice so in, in in all the articles you know the it's going to be a regular advice column and people can write you know the, what their questions and so anyone can send their questions anyone to can you. send them in to where do they, how do they send it dear guy mm-hmm. at ted.com now you can all send it in i have to you know the editor will choose letters that that she yes. wants me to uh, to answer and the thing about it, it's going to be science-based so i'm going to try and I mean, all advice columns, what they try and do is say like, yes, this is that person's questions, but I'm going to answer it in a way that is going to be applicable or interesting to a broad swath of the public. Yeah. What, what I want to do is try and highlight, here are the psychological issues yes. with that question. And some of the time it's going to be what the person asked. And some of the time the person is going to ask something and I'm going to say, nice question, but really actually the issue is over here. Yes. And, and then I'm going to try and I'm going to provide some links to studies to say this and this and this. And by the way, here's a link just because I think if you're going to be science based, show us, show us the cards. Um, and um, so we that's going to launch in February. Um, it's going to be bi-monthly. Uh, yes. So twice a month. So where can they find that column? On uh, TED.com. Ted has a, a, a they put out a talk a day, an article a day on their ideas blog. 
So they can do that. They can sign up uh, through my uh, email list or, or website. They can, and but Ted has a has a, a newsletter that they can yes. sign up for, in which they'll be getting it. But what's your website? It's guywinch.com? Guywinch.com. Okay, that's yeah. G-U-Y-W-I-N-C-H. Yep. Right. And if you have trouble remembering that, just go to ted.com, T-E-D, and put in Guy. And it'll pop up. There are a few guys, but you'll see one that, that has an advice column and that will... Uh, and this is the first advice column. It's the first column ever Ted has done. They haven't done any columns. They have different writers do yes. things, uh, but they haven't had a regular column from a regular person who's going to be a repeat guest. So this is the first for them. That's um, awesome. I'm, yeah, I'm thrilled. To it's be a testament person. to your work, Guy, and uh, how you've made these complex principles and uh, the tool set so accessible to everyone everyone's uh, in our community really relates to you and they just they just get what you say and i love the way you put things so you know thank you thank you so much uh for well, thank you for inviting me sam a to the conference again because it's such a pleasure to be here and uh, to the podcast awesome so we'll be uh, back next year at 2021 <laughs> we'll we'll talk we'll talk oh, yeah. okay very possible <laughs> awesome thank you thank you thank you sam